All right, so we're talking here, we're finishing up Jesus and the hard storylines. Thunder, tornadoes, lightning, no flowers, no frills, right? We're just going to go right in, okay? The fall of man ushered in a lot of devastation. And there's a lot of scripture in the Old Testament and particularly that reflects that, okay? In the Old Testament, when civilization wasn't very civilized, that's how I refer to it, we see the worst of humanity using and abusing all the time the vulnerable in a culture, the vulnerable around them. And it's usually women and children, right? So how do we reconcile the ways women were harmed in the Old Testament through jealousy, rape, murder, general oppression. How do we um, reconcile that in the pages of Old Testament with the character of God so clearly seen in Jesus and the Gospels toward women? Remember, Jesus is the exact representation of God. That's how Colossians 1 refers to him. He's the exact representation of God. So how do we reconcile what we're seeing in the pages of the Old Testament with Jesus' revelation of the character of God in the Gospels? What stories from Scripture to you seem particularly problematic? Any ones that strike y'all? That weighed on your minds? I got all kinds, but I just wondered if... Yeah? Mm-hmm. And it paints like the woman as the, the bad, the bad person because like she's weak. Yeah. She said, "Oh, here, eat it," and then they would just fall. Right. And that just comes to mind. Yet Adam was there the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. He never steps in. That's the interesting thing. You may miss. Adam was there the whole time. It's not like Satan deceived Eve and Adam was over there doing some godly thing. Is right there with her. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, yeah. Any other stories in, that bother you about women? Um, David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. I got a bunch. So Genesis 3, you mentioned um, Dinah, the rape of Dinah. In Genesis If you've read through the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 21 and Deuteronomy 22 both have some disturbing things. I talk about those in particular, Deuteronomy 22 in my book, so I'm not going to talk about it today, but some disturbing stuff in there. Um, How about Jephthah? You know the story of Jephthah? We mentioned it real briefly, where he has this misguided pledge to God, I will sacrifice the next thing that comes out of my tent to you, and it's his daughter. And it doesn't say it explicitly, but the implication is that he does. He kills his daughter in this misguided pledge to God. How about the the rape of the concubine of Judah? Um, If you've read that story. I mean, there are a lot. It's really a lot, right? Um, And these stories reflect the harsh realities of life after fall, after the fall. It's not good. We do indeed need a savior. It's not like it's just generally kind of bad. 
and people are a little bit selfish and you know maybe they don't always give all their money to the poor no it's not like that it's like they're terrible people <laughs> we really need a savior we really can't save ourselves we cannot make ourselves righteous and we cannot keep ourselves righteous um so these stories reflect the harsh realities of life after the fall they reflect the problem with mankind with humankind <clears throat> But what do they reflect of God the Father? What do they reflect about Jesus? What is their place in the long story of Scripture fulfilled by Jesus in the Gospels? We're going to look at Numbers 5. That's the one particular one I want to look at today. And I'm only going to do this one because I think we don't have time to really fully flesh out all of them. And I think Numbers 5 serves as a good case study particularly on hard Old Testament laws that seem to singularly focus on women. Okay, so let's read through this. Numbers 5, and it's a long passage. We'll read through. Okay. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them if any man's wife goes astray, is unfaithful to him and sleeps with another, but it is concealed from her husband and she is undetected, Okay, and just note, there's a different law if she is caught in adultery. Okay, this is, they think she has, but they don't have any proof. Okay, if she is undetected, even though she has defiled herself, since there is no witness against her and she wasn't caught in the act. And if a feeling of jealousy comes over the husband and he becomes jealous because of his wife who has defiled herself, Or if a feeling of jealousy comes over him and he becomes jealous of her, though she has not defiled herself. Then the man is to bring his wife to the priest. He is also to bring an offering for her of two quarts of barley flour. He is not to pour oil over it or put frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy. A grain offering for remembrance to draw attention to guilt. The priest is to bring her forward and have her stand before the Lord. Then the priest is to take holy water in a clay bowl, take some of the dust from the tabernacle floor and put it in the water. After the priest has the water stand before the Lord, he is to let down her hair and place in her hands the grain offering for remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. The priest is to hold the bitter water that brings a curse the priest will require the woman to take, take an oath and will say to her, if no man has slept with you, if you have not gone astray and become defiled while under your husband's authority, be unaffected by this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has slept with you, at this point, the priest will make the woman take the oath with the sworn curse, and he is to say to her, may the Lord make you into an object of your people's cursing and swearing when he makes your womb shrivel and your belly swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your stomach, causing your belly to swell and your womb to shrivel. And the woman will reply, amen, amen. Let's skip down to verse 27. When he makes her drink the water, if she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, 
The water that brings a curse will enter her to cause bitter suffering. Her belly will swell and her womb will shrivel. She will become a curse among her people, but if the woman has not defiled herself and is pure, she will be unaffected and will be able to conceive children. This is the law regarding jealousy. When a wife goes astray and defiles herself while under her husband's authority, or when a feeling of jealousy comes over a husband and he becomes jealous of his wife, he is to have the woman stand before the Lord and the priest will carry out all these instructions for her. The husband will be free of guilt, but that woman will bear her iniquity. Okay. All right, you may recognize this as the concept called a trial by ordeal. If you've studied American history, you're familiar with trials by ordeal from the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts, right? But trial by ordeal has a long history, not just here, but in the Code of Hammurabi, which was um, Egyptian codes of laws that predates actually the Old Testament laws through the Middle um, the um, Middle Ages, but ancient cultures for, for generations and generations have had trial by ordeals. Um, there are various types, trials by fire, trials by burning oil, trials by hot water, trials by cold water, trials by drinking acid, trials by combat. I looked them up to see what the historical... Um, how it, how it played out in history. Most medieval um, trials by ordeal had a common theme, that the gods would protect an innocent person from being harmed. So you throw someone tied up into a cold river, river, and if they were innocent, they would miraculously free themselves and rise to the top. Force a woman to walk across hot coals, and if she was not burned or she healed quickly... She was innocent of the accusations against her. So the idea was that the gods would keep you from being harmed um, in the vast majority of historical records of trials by ordeal. Now, as modern believers, what we recognize very clearly the problems with ancient trials by ordeal. You know, they seem like superstitious people um, trying to decide things for themselves. It really just seems superstitious, right? So what do we do when we see it in scripture itself? You know, in the preserved word of God handed down for generations for our instruction. Okay. What do we do with that? Um, numbers five, God's giving Moses steps for judging between a jealous husband and his wife who may or may not have committed adultery, and there is no proof. Okay? Like I said, there's a different law if there's clear and obvious proof. Um, Numbers 5 is addressing this particular situation where it's suspected, but there's no external proof. Um, he feels this feeling of jealousy, which may or may not be because she defiled the marriage, and it reminds me of another problematic passage, Deuteronomy 22. There, if a husband um, on his wedding night thinks his wife is not a virgin, there's this process to go through to prove that she has not defiled herself. And in both of them, what do you, we, we don't see something interesting. We don't see the opposite. Okay, so we don't see on your wedding night wives accusing their husbands of not being a virgin, even though 
the Old Testament sexual laws equally apply to both men and women. Okay, and in this case, we don't see wives coming with a feeling of jealousy. There's no corresponding law. And what it reminds us is, you know, at first you would say, well, you know, what if a wife did? The problem is wives generally didn't. You know, it's not um, because society was predisposed to be suspicious and oppressive of the women, not of the men. So you don't generally have wives running around trying to get themselves out of their marriage to their husbands and coming up with false accusations that they're not a virgin at marriage. Because that's not how the culture was predisposed. Um, And other laws on sexual faithfulness apply equitably to both sexes. But these accusations of one... um, uh, seem one-sided, okay? And that's that's a problem. That feels wrong, right? But from session one, we looked at Jesus's words in Luke 24, 27. Jesus who was not bad for women. Jesus who rose women um, in ways that their culture did not. What does he say? He said that the law of Moses, quote unquote, he said the law of Moses. And these, this is it. Numbers 5 is part of the law of Moses. Somehow points to him. Somehow gives insight into what he came to do and the necessity of both his death and his resurrection for the sins of mankind. That's what he tells us in, in Luke 24. This, this points to me. Now, it's no secret that the Old Testament has... A fallen culture that was naturally inclined against women. In fact, at the fall of man, God predicts this. Genesis 3.16. We've talked about the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis uh, 3.15, which is really a beautiful way, even though it's a horrible time when you have the fall of man, this woman has, um, you know, sinned and then gives it, um, it to Adam. Adam falls, follows her into sin And Adam then accuses her to God, this woman you gave me. But what does God do? As soon as God walks in, it's really a beautiful process to read through. He doesn't, so, you know, the process is that God walks in and he asks Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, the woman you gave me. But God doesn't turn to her. Who does God turn to and speak first? Satan. He turns first to Satan. He says, because you did this. That's his exact language. He doesn't go to the woman and say, because you did this. He goes to Satan. He says, because you did this, you will be at warfare with, with the woman and with one born of woman. And, and he will, you will chafe at his heels, but he will bruise your head. But then he turns to the woman and he predicts this issue. Look, this is what's going to happen now. You will turn toward your husband. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, in in the fall of man, the struggle that we have and that we see between the genders is in fact that the man in many cases will oppressively rule the woman. And that's what we see play out in the Old Testament. It's not unexpected. It's ugly, but it's not unexpected. God understood this And the brokenness of the genders would be one of the ways this brokenness plays out. Okay, so in this fallen survival of the fittest world, women become commodities 
among powerful men, and it often, in this case, we see how it's playing out, in irrational, unjustified jealousy. Okay? Now, in John 5, as in, I mean, excuse me, in Numbers 5, and we also see it in John 8, only the woman is accused, but if she has, in fact, committed adultery, how many people did that take? Two, right? If he's had this feeling of jealousy, she's not the only one that partook in that sin. And in John 8, you have a woman thrown in adultery at Jesus' feet. She was caught in adultery. If she was caught in adultery, there were two violators of the law there, right? But the man is not thrown at Jesus' feet. So um, even if she had, in fact, committed this violation of the law... There's injustice just in the fact that only she is the one thrown um, to the wolf, so to speak, and not the one who he seems the one who participated in the sin with her in violation of her covenant seems to be getting the good end of the stick. You know, nobody seems to be pursuing him or accusing him. Okay, so even if she had, in fact, done it. But here's the interesting thing. This one seems to accommodate if she hasn't. Okay? She's, she's free and clear. She actually hasn't violated her covenant. And her husband just has this feeling of jealousy. All right? Elsewhere in Scripture, we recognize the problem with this. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Numbers 5, says that charity in general or biblical love in general, much more conjugal affection, in other words, much more the the love that's supposed to characterize a Christian marriage, teaches us to think no evil. This is from 1 Corinthians 13.5. Agape love doesn't entertain unfounded suspicions. You know, uh, love suffers long and is kind and it thinks no evil. So it is actually... Uh, sin. It's wrong. It's a violation of the greatest command to entertain unjust accusations. But Numbers 5, the husband's violation of biblical love by way of this unjust accusation isn't condemned. It's not until the New Testament that we come to understand that actually what he's doing is a problem. You're not justified in having unjust accusations with no proof. That's not okay, actually. So we're confronted with an issue that comes up again and again in Scripture. And we've talked about it here. The fact that it is a long story. That we do not resolve all parts in any individual part. Scripture is not resolved. The struggle of Scripture is not resolved until the Gospels. Until the Gospels, we just have unresolved issues. Okay? Um, So why did God assure Satan that one was coming that was going to bruise his head, give him a knockout blow to the head in Genesis 3, and then wait something like um, thousands of years? I don't really know exactly how long it was between that and God's calling of Abraham. But then even once he called Abraham, he waits like another 500 years before bringing them out of Egypt. And then even after they inherit the land in the book of Joshua, it's like another 1,400 years before the Messiah comes. 
And we're confronted with an issue that comes up a lot in scripture because it is, in fact, a long story that transcends individual lifespans. So we are a part of a story that is bigger than just our lifespan. Peter um, words it this way in 1 Peter 3, 8, and I find this really, really helpful. Here's what he says. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So in this particular passage, we're kind of confronted with this issue that God's perception of time and mine are different. Because I'm bound by my, you know, I got about 80 years, and so I'd like to see things resolved in about 80 years, right? But God is eternal, and, and it is resolved, right? God sees it resolved, and he's calling us to faith as we are in the story, but we don't yet get to see the ending in reality. So we have to lean into this understanding of God's sense of time in order for us to have perspective when things don't get resolved in the lifespans that we would like to see them resolved in. Our hope as believers is that injustice in this life, injustice in those women's lives, will be fully reconciled in this next. And this passage requires that understanding as much as any. Yet, even this injustice points to Jesus' coming in the new. All right, so let's connect some more data points so we can get to that fulfillment. So in Numbers 5, we've just read this. Probably your initial gut reaction, if you haven't read it before, was negative. Okay, I had a negative gut reaction. And it can go very negatively, very quickly, depending on what we believe to be true about God. Okay, we talked um, in our question and answer time about the fact that we ask too much of ourselves to trust a stranger. So let's take a moment before we flesh this out. Let's take a moment and let's think about what we know to be true from Scripture about the God who gave these laws to Moses. All right. Got just a few. Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of armies. He gives wondrous advice. He gives great wisdom. So if that's true, could there be something in Numbers 5, for folks living in that time, in that place, for men and women facing those types of temptations in ancient Israel, could there be some wisdom for them? Another one, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. The word compassion comes from the Latin for suffering with someone. What is God saying? I'm compassionate. I suffer with you. I'm abounding in faithful love. So God enters the suffering of his children. He's not distant from them. He is faithful in his love for them. So could God be showing compassion in Numbers 5? And then Psalms 119, 68. You are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. So simply put, God is good. He does what is good. 
So as statutes are then worth engaging when we are unsure, when we at first have a negative gut reaction to them, they're worth engaging because we trust his character. So going back to Numbers 5, then let's think about the context here. Remember, at this point, civilization isn't very civilized. And in that context, even outside the bounds of Israel, a husband was understood to have full authority over his wife. And that's not, you know, that was culturally wide, whether they believed in God or not. Um, And if she was accused of adultery, a husband would have been well within his cultural rights to divorce her without cause, without proof, or even to put her to death. In fact, in the Code of Hammurabi, which is the Egyptian, um, it, it slightly predates the Old Testament law, um, but it's you know not a Jew, not a Christian document. It's an Egyptian document. Um, in the Code of Hammurabi, an accused wife was expected to quote-unquote, jump into the river for her husband if he similarly accused her of unfaithfulness. So culture was um, predisposed against women in a big way here. And not, not, we think of the Israelite, the law being predisposed against women because you, I'm like, you ain't seen nothing. You go read some of the other ones at the same time and it's way, way worse all right. So in the in the Egyptian law, she was ex- she had a trial by ordeal. She had to jump in the river for her husband if he accused her, even in the absence of evidence. But not so for God's people. If a husband accused a wife without evidence, God commanded that the priest be called in to mediate. Okay. Do you start to hear a whisper of Jesus? So the accuser, with all of the cultural power, the husband has all of the cultural power. He could not decide the consequences for himself in God's household. He could in Egypt. But in the family of God, the accuser, with all the power, could not decide the consequences for himself. He had to submit to another who stood in protection of the wife. And determined her guilt or innocence by process, not by simple suspicion or accusation. Okay? All right, and then you get the the accused wife. She's supposed to drink this holy water sprinkled with tabernacle dust. So, in uh, probably from the water, probably came from the Levitical. If you read Leviticus, they had these um, bowls for ritual cleansing. So the water probably came from there, the dust from the floor of the tabernacle. Um, And and we start to see as you read through this little process for determining her guilt or innocence, this trial by ordeal, a big difference in um, medieval trials by ordeal, but also in the ones in the Code of Hammurabi, the Egyptian trials by ordeal. Here's the big difference. The Code of Hammurabi Uh, promised death unless there was miraculous intervention by the gods. But the miracle in this trial in Numbers 5 would not be if she was saved, but if she was harmed. She's drinking water with some dust in it. Okay, So she's actually 
protected by the process instead of harmed by it. Okay? There's a really big difference. Most trials by ordeal, they thought the gods would protect the innocent. Here it's the exact opposite. She's naturally protected by the process rather than threatened by it. And then, you know, when I'm reading Numbers 5, I can be really distracted by the whole odd process. Let's sprinkle some dust and then call her here. And she's going to say, amen, amen, put her hair down. But I think really um, where we ought to focus, the better focus is the mediation of the priest. Because that's really what starts to point to the long story of Jesus in Scripture. John Calvin notes it this way in his commentary on Numbers 5. Many are causelessly suspicious. And he suggests that Numbers 5 is protecting against what he calls trifling suspicions of husbands against wives. To Calvin, the role of the priest was key because he said when jealousy has once taken possession of the mind, there is no room for moderation or equity. So in this law, God, the just judge, stepped in through the mediation of the priest and he protected the woman from unjust accusation that in other cultures she did not have protection from. But the process is by no means perfect, right? Leaving us to wonder why did God prescribe this method and not some more precise one? Or why didn't God just teach, as he does in 1 Corinthians 13, that merely entertaining the accusation without proof violates a husband's love for his wife? Here's another data point, okay? Something that Paul teaches us in Galatians 3.24, and it's really, really important when we're confronting the Old Testament law. He says, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. In other words, rather than producing righteousness, the law didn't make men righteous and it did not keep men righteous. It was a tutor, a guardian, that pointed us to our need for Christ. It temporarily restrained sin, but it didn't correct the evils of the world. So Numbers 5 may have temporarily provided protection for the wife from an unjust accusation in a way that trials by ordeal in other cultures did not. But it didn't change the heart of her husband, right? Yet it is this very injustice that shows us our need for something more than the law could provide. And here we start to hear the hints of the better thing that in Jesus, that the law teaches us that we need. So you got the human priest. He's commanded to step into this unjust situation. He stays the hand of jealousy, albeit in this limited way. But it points to our better mediator, right? Our better high priest before God, Jesus. First Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. What's the point of a mediator? Okay, they're they're, um, advocates who stand between an accuser and the accused um, before a judge. Okay, so in Numbers 5, the husband unjustly accuses 
and apart from this law would likely set himself up as accuser, judge, and executioner. In the Code of Hammurabi, that's how it worked. The husband accuses, well, he's the accuser, he's the judge, and he's the executioner. But not so in God's law. The priest steps in to mediate before God, the just judge who makes right decisions. And the priest protects this woman from an unjust accusation. In the same way that Jesus steps in before our just judge. He stepped into our our lives and he stops both the unjust accusations of Satan, but he also stops the just ones. The true accusations. Revelations 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Echoes back to Genesis 3.15. You will deal him a knockout blow to the head. Why have Satan's accusations of us before God the judge been hurled down? Because they were satisfied by Christ. This is key to understanding how Numbers 5 fits into this long story of Jesus in Scripture. Numbers 5 affords wives priestly protection from unjust accusations. Albeit in an imperfect, partial way. This law is just a tutor, right? Pointing to Jesus, yet unable to make men fully righteous, Scripture says. In the Gospels, we see the fulfillment in Christ. As Jesus stepped in to halt the just condemnation of the woman caught in adultery in John 8, right? It's just. It isn't without evidence. It is with evidence. And he steps in between the accused and accuser and stops it. Why? Because he's going to pay for it on the cross. Don't stone her. They're going to stone him. They're going to crucify him and hang him on the cross in her place. Okay. And also the sinful woman in Luke 7, where the shame is being projected onto her. He stops it. He stops the shame and, and elevates her. Above the Pharisee, the Pharisee who did not respond to him hospitably. Luke 7 is another really beautiful passage to read that gives some perspective on this. Ultimately, Jesus on the cross silenced for all time both just and unjust accusations against all of us, male or female. He brought our case before God the judge, protecting us from unjust accusations but paying the penalty for the just ones. Okay? Jesus became the curse among the people. That's what it says. She's going to become a curse among her people if she's truly done it. Jesus, that, but the Bible uses that language of Jesus. Cursed are all those who hang on the tree. He became the curse in our place. He was wounded for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So Numbers 5 then is a tutor that points us to the one mediator between God and men who silences all accusations against those who believe in his name. 
Apart from its context and the long story of scripture, to me, Numbers 5 is just troubling. But when I put it in the context of the long story of Jesus in scripture, it's transformed. In my heart, it's been transformed into something beautiful, fulfilled in Christ. Remember what Matthew 5, 17, what Jesus teaches us there. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Mm -mm. I came to fulfill it. Okay. He fulfills it. So then we can be inspired to engage the word. Because we understand the context of the hard parts into the beauty of Jesus. And why is Jesus beautiful? Because apart from him, it's really, really bad, right? But then he comes and supernaturally transforms the worst into something beautiful that we can value for their place and pointing us to him. All right, so we've retreated for a bit. We've stepped back for a little bit of time from the cares of the world and from the deceitfulness of riches, right? But... um. We've, we've contemplated the long story of Jesus, but re-entry is coming very quickly. Okay? And I found in times past that re-entry after a time away is like Satan's playground. Oh, I'm going to rob him. Rob him of all the good. Okay? So as we re-enter, may the long story of Jesus in Scripture equip you to live out your place in that story. With clarity and confidence. Confidence that you are equipped. That he has not left you as an orphan to go do this on your own. You're not out there languishing. You know, we talked a little bit during the Q&A. How do I tap in? Go get in the word. Get in the word. Okay. Spend some time in the word. Can't do it every day. At least do it. Try to do it three or four times a week. I found sometimes if I can just get myself to think through doing it three or four times a week, then I don't feel so overwhelmed when I miss a couple days. Um, and I could just step back into it. But you need the word. You need time alone, quietly. Um, and if, if you are still wondering about some of this stuff, start in the Gospels. I recommend the book of Luke. Or maybe you have another Bible reading plan or something you're studying. But if not, the book of Luke is a really great place to just get Jesus. Jesus for, for you, okay? So as we end, I hope that you will, this is a Presbyterian thing, but I hope you'll allow me for a moment to say a, speak a benediction. Do you guys do benedictions? Okay. Do you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let me speak a good word over you from one of the passages we've um, um, of, have spoken about a little bit. So from Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Why don't you stand here as we close and I'll speak this good word from God to you. Ladies, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, as beloved daughters, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice to God in your place. Amen.